Welcome to D-Listers of History, the podcast about interesting people you probably didn't learn about school about. Wow, I've been not doing this great lately. <laughs> interesting people you probably class in school. That <laughs> interesting people you probably learned about didn't learn about in school. Wow, um, I got four hours of sleep last night. Uh, my name is Fega, and I am your very tired historian. <laughs> I am Isa, and I am. Oh no. I don't have a great name for myself. This is like, I have to think, this is like my final chance to think of like a great, <laughs> a great out. Um, but I am, I, um, I, oh no, oh no. Well, the, the Terminator's always been popular. <laughs> I am the Terminator, but yeah. a little for, for clump. Yeah, for clumps. Yeah, for clump. yeah. 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 <laughs> and I am for clumps. Issa got a like big kid job. Got a big kid job. Yeah. Yes. Uh-oh. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'm gonna be be flying solo for a little bit. Um. But oh, no. yeah, that's okay. But we have a great guest. Uh, we do. Who is back? Welcome Yay. back to David Pate. Uh, David developed the Food Network's Diners, Drive-ins, and Dives, and executive produced it for 11 seasons. He's also created a number of other food-related television shows, like Outrageous Food and Tailgate Warriors. He has written a book called Food Americana, The Remarkable People and Incredible Stories Behind America's Favorite Dishes. Uh, basically, he's the person to talk to when it comes to American food traditions. So welcome oh, great back. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me again. Usually, after I go someplace, they don't ask me back. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, And then I, they, I get a bill for all the damage. So, you know. This is... Well, this is why we're over the internet, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> for for all for all that goes along with that um so uh we are doing a little sort of time dilation because this is our christmas episode so happy christmas to whoever's oh, listening you're british oh yeah sure happy christmas here, here it's merry christmas <laughs> i know I, it just it merry christmas always feels weird i don't know why <laughs> but oh, anyway, i love it okay so we're here having jewish christmas we are having not Jewish actually because I would get in yes. trouble if I was eating in the recording studio. Um, yes. But we're here to talk about Jewish Christmas. Yay. Uh, Yay. Yeah. So uh, what's everybody's favorite Chinese American takeout food? Well, I, you want me, I know the answer because I know what we're going to talk about. But well, that but, would just sure, but what do you suspense. actually like to eat? <laughs> oh, I, I actually like to eat General Chow's chicken. It is Perfect. one of the, the great um, cardiac-inducing delights mm-hmm. of, of American cuisine, and it is quite American. Absolutely. Yes, yes I'm also a big fan. Um, although growing up, I was very dedicated to um, chicken lo mein. Well, uh, yeah, because that's sort yeah. of Italian, yeah, kind of. <laughs> which, which is another very popular American cuisine. Interesting. Interesting. I, I was... Mother, 
what what's the one? My mother was egg foo young. Mm. Oh, my Which dad! Basic... My dad's an egg foo young person. Yeah, but I was always thought to myself, why go to a Chinese restaurant and have an omelet? I know. I ordered it once as an adult, and I was like, I don't understand. That's not my yeah, thing. It's... My dad, my dad, and I are the cold sesame noodle gang. We're, well, there's a lot to be said for that. A lot to be said. Unfortunately, it's not something you can get now. You know, most of my most of the Chinese food I have now are is the the Philadelphia corner store uh, bulletproof glass China Chinese food, um, which we have. One, I'm very, very happy I, about a lot of things. I'm moving into a new house, but one is that we have an amazing corner store Chinese food that has excellent General Chow's chicken. And really? uh, yes, it's absolutely amazing. And they were closed. They were closed. I, I was painting all day. They were closed. I had to go down the street to an identical looking store and it was dreadful. <laughs> Well, dreadful. our interpretation, our, our happy place with all sorts of foods is um, the place we initially got it. Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I wasn't really a General So's person until I first moved to the city proper. Mm -hmm. And I was living in a, like, studio apartment in a terrible building in West Philly that, like, had cockroaches and like a couple of years later somebody died there because oh they my like gosh. hadn't updated oh, their carbon yeah. they hadn't their carbon monoxide detectors oh no it's a terrible um, way to go i know right I know, um, it's but... useful that's <laughs> yeah, true uh, you're not... it's being knifed if we're gonna you know sort them out you're not you're not you're not <laughs> and i think this is a great Great time to drop our previous guest, Charming Disaster, has a single about carbon monoxide poisoning called Cherry Red. You can't catch your breath. You've got the vapors. Cherry Red, that's how you'll know. Uh, so <laughs> You're not entirely wrong, but, there, but there's something so creepy about it, you know. Yeah, since it was yeah. probably done by a cockroach who wanted to take the place over. <laughs> I had to name the cockroaches to feel okay about it. Um, yeah. It rained inside once, but well, one thing that was good about that place um, was it was nearby a place called Lucky's that you mm -hmm. could get a General So's tofu for, I think it was wait, like... Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Hold on. Very good. Very good. A warrant, a warrant for your arrest. A warrant. They, they, this place well. Now I have since discovered that most other places cannot manage it, but for good reason. <laughs> but this it's guy, he had it. He had it down. But he unfortunately closed his restaurant. He said he. Uh, it was it was it was a day of mourning in West Philly when Lucky's closed. Like literally, oh. people were leaving flowers outside and stuff. And it was like it was it was a nice closing. Like he just was like, I'm tired of working seven days a week for the last like 20 years. And people were like, that's legit. <laughs> yeah, but what's interesting, you know, you you talk about tofu being used as a protein replacement, and not not to to pee on anyone who <laughs> is um, a vegetarian or. Um, vegan the problem with using tofu to replace identifiable dishes is that it cooks differently it, it does. doesn't have the fat of dark meat chicken which is what imbues general chows or tso's i've heard it both ways from all sorts of people including in taiwan that is essential to giving the dish 
it's real taste. What you're doing whenever you fry tofu is you're using it as a flavor um, palette. You know, it's like eggplant. Yeah. doesn't really taste like anything. You just you add a flavor. And it's never quite the experience. But I, I have a whole rant I'll do about <laughs> fake food not being the original. So yeah, that, well, that's fine. The, the guy who owned Lucky's had figured it out. Um, I don't know what he did. It probably yeah, wasn't. you know what he was doing? <laughs> He was probably <laughs> frying it in duck fat. He probably was. That's probably yeah. why it was so good. Um, but uh, so this is an interesting like relationship, the Jewish community with Chinese restaurants, um, and especially around Christmas. And uh, yeah, but Christmas is the ultimate extreme of a relationship that was born in the 1800s when Chinese food arrived in New York City, uh, brought by... Uh, Chinese immigrants who to a great extent had been violently forced out of the West Coast and even legally excluded. I mean, they passed the Chinese Exclusion Act and they were burning up Chinatowns. Mm -hmm. And in New York, um, having been through that experience themselves, they were far less prejudiced than most of um, white American culture at the time with respect to Jews and African Americans, mm -hmm. which made a Chinese restaurant one of the few places that reviled minorities could go have a pleasant meal. Uh, and then yeah. there's all the other stuff about how, you know, uh, American Jews were trying to assimilate, wanted to feel mm -hmm. American, and somehow Chinese food felt American to them. But Which the I think is such thing, an interesting thing. Well, yeah, but uh, – and when you cut up all your proteins yep. in little tiny pieces mm. and you hide them under gravy, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier for supposedly kosher Jews <laughs> to say, well, you know yep. <laughs> it, it's fine and you yep. know the, the expression safe trafe mm -hmm. well, my, my mm -hmm. grandfather was one of the great adherents of, of course you know to him oh, shrimps yeah. and lobster sauce was really chicken <laughs> yeah oh no like it's it's funny because like my grandfather was not in the slightest bit so my, my, my maternal grandfather um was not in the slightest bit like observant he married a non-jewish woman he didn't raise his kids jewish but he would not eat pork chops but he ate bacon well bacon's good and pork chops tend to be dry <laughs> and, and very it doesn't have the word pork in it so i guess okay there it is Look, my, my um, yeah. grandfather kept a trafe plate in the house just in case somebody came over with something good i used to do that everybody <laughs> has their own rules yeah i had a roommate who was very very like strict and i had to have my little trafe area yeah <laughs> did we did we did i did i tell you guys last time about um one of ben's grandparents who had nine sets of dishes because you know what there was the um you know the, the regular meat plates the regular cheese plates the fancy meat plates the fancy cheese plates the and then all over again for passover and then and then the ninth secret plates for spaghetti reach, and meatballs, <laughs> for spaghetti and meatballs with level, Parmesan, yeah. with Parmesan, because you have because you have to have the Parmesan on it, otherwise yes. it's, it's worthless. Um, so that's that was the secret the secret set of dishes that the, the uh, one of I think one of Ben's grandpas kept in the house. Um, no, it gets to a much deeper question, which is what is the value of kosher of keeping mm -hmm. kosher mm -hmm. in the twenty first century, mm -hmm. and 
Um, obviously, to me, it's meaningless. To some people, it is a connection to a past. Um, not not being a real fan of any orthodoxy that keeps you in the 18th century or earlier, uh, it doesn't work for me. But if it makes you happy, then again, you know, uh, did I tell the story about the non-kosher crab meal last time? I don't think so. We, we had some friends who were, um, they wore their kashrith on their sleeve. Mm. They were far more... Um, religious in their minds than we were or another couple that was also their friends. We had met at synagogue in Glenridge, New Jersey. Anyway, we were all getting together at a friend's house, not not theirs, for a big meal. And, and uh, my wife and Candy, the wife of the other non-kosher non couple, love crabs. So they bought a zillion crabs to boil and, you know, beat to shit at the table. And they bought um, salmon for our kosher friends. And they had their salmon and we had crabs and the kids were done eating. They went into the backyard to play and then the kosher couple starts eating crab. And I say to them, what? And they say, well, we didn't want her to see it. <laughs> okay. It's like being yeah. a heroin addict, but not in front of the kids. <laughs> That's so I mean, weird. And, and this is, I mean, this is the thing, right? Um, this is this, this balance that, especially going back to the early 20th century, a lot of American Jews were starting to make. It was also like, I think for a lot of, depending on where the like Russian Jews came from when we came in the early 20th century. Russia generally. Uh, right. <laughs> um, but there was... <laughs> <laughs> but there it's a slightly large place especially back then um but there was oftentimes pogroms on christmas so like mm. christmas was a day mm. to stay at home and this mm. is actually in hasidic communities still to this day they mm. celebrates the wrong word they uh do what's called nitelnacht which is today nowadays it's like you stay up on christmas eve and play board games and mm. you don't study torah um, I, I knew nothing about that that's fascinating yeah and it's because the the and this was the Christmas, as I understand it, in the Western world in general, for a long time was really about drinking and carousing and so forth. And unfortunately, yeah, in places like a lot of places in Eastern Europe and like the Pale of the Settlement, drinking and carousing turned into pogroms huh. with great frequency. So I imagine huh. that I imagine there was a level of like safety of like we can go yeah. do something on christmas that's not hide in our house well also let's be clear here in the states um chinese restaurants were one of the few options when everything yeah. else was closed on christmas yeah yeah you know, and there's I, I i don't know if this story is true or apocryphal but allegedly there was a sign on the door of a chinese restaurant saying we don't know why your religion causes you yeah. to eat here on christmas but we're glad to have you i i I've saw that. that i saw that <laughs> my my relatives love posting that like every year i i count yep. on uncle myron to post that picture and yeah, I, but, I love but it, it also it also expanded to the point where uh didn't you do a movie on christmas the yeah, theater was yeah. Most, the theater was mostly empty. There yep. wasn't anything else going on. <laughs> you know, so and, it, be, it became an alternative Jewish yeah. holiday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And as as an interfaith kid, we would, you know, have Christmas in the morning and then we go see a movie. 
Yeah. So you know we got both both experiences. Yeah, oh, wow. I hope, or or fiddler on the roof. <laughs> I guess whatever is play. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean nowadays I'm very dedicated to watching. Um, uh, oh wow, what's that movie? Um, Die Hard. Thank you. I love it. Mostly because the first time I mentioned it, my wife was like, "That's not a Christmas movie," and so oh, now, sure it is. of course, it is. <laughs> and so of now, it it's is. like I'm like very dedicated to Die Hard. Um, of course. As a well, I read movie. an article recently about producing it, and um, you know, he wore fake feet. What? That's awesome. All, all <laughs> that makes of that sense. Running around on broken glass. I'm glad he did. <laughs> It was it was prosthetic. It was like a rubber yeah. shoe with toes that he. It's well he, done. It's oh, well it's done. Cool. It's a good prosthetic. I'm, I'm glad for him because that looked uncomfortable. Yeah. Even with breakaway glass, that would be really uncomfortable. <laughs> the other thing that um, that I find one of the things I, I wonder about the the origins of going to going to Chinese restaurants on on Christmas is the the changing demographics of old Jewish neighborhoods where you you know the all of these jewish neighborhoods that were once you know full of the ashkenazi immigrants were slow like a lot of them became chinese neighborhoods or a lot of them became east asian like mostly chinese or east asian neighborhoods and so what i wonder is how many people you know especially were like once they moved out to the suburbs came over to visit their old neighborhoods or like they knew those people or they knew they felt at home that's um, an interesting point. Although my mm-hmm. racist grandmother would rail about the oh, Chinese, yeah. they lived on the Lower East Side, and the Chinese right. were slowly expanding Chinatown into yeah. what had been a Jewish and Italian neighborhood. Yeah, and New yeah. York neighborhoods, you know, it's like two blocks away. It's not like flying right. to Serbia. <laughs> right. No, my grandmother was just. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, pretty my, virulent. Oh my 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 freaking my freaking uncle. We at Thanksgiving, who is young enough to not do this, was like, "Oh yeah, all the Orientals are now in this in in the Flushing neighborhood where you still." I was like, "Myron, what? Are you serious?" So it's like this. It's this weird. It's this. It's this weird relation. I feel like it's this weird. It's kind of this relationship where it's like you know we have there's there's that there's that there's there's in some in some ways it's symbiotic and then other ways there are these tensions. Yeah, so it's it's a lot of these these assimilation things. I'm gonna try to get us on the timeline. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I was born in Flushing. It was Jewish at the time. Of course, yeah. yeah. Really when uh, when um... I for my book, I went to a huge Chinese food food court there. I yeah. love that place. I love it so oh. much. What's oh yeah, so good. World so something. good, and it's like it's like being in Beijing. It's incredible. Um, yeah. so the but without without as much governmental repression. For sure. Right. Um, And it's actually also significantly less crowded. Um, But uh, the so speaking of assimilation and so forth, which kind of fits in with your uh, with your uncle's things. Nice segue. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying. Um, <laughs> so as this was a sort of Jewish way of trying to become American, um, this was a lot of what Chinese immigrants were and continue to experience of that same sort of issue of like the dual loyalty and that sort of like, well, where are you really from stuff? So where what what ended up happening in a lot of cases was these they they formed um, organizations, these like Chinese business organizations, associations, they call. Yeah, there we go. Associations. And they those associations would help people get their footing. And even like 
there'd be like they may even have a map with like the cities that have small Chinese populations where you might be able to open a laundry or a restaurant. Which were the only two industries that were really open to Chinese yes. at the because time. Because they couldn't be laborers because of the Chinese Exclusion Act and no one would hire them. And so they had to figure figure it out. And they did. And that's also a lot of making Chinese food appeal to Americans. Uh, the famous mm -hmm. first sort of food was uh, chop suey, of course, mm -hmm. um, which was designed with American tastes in mind. You'd have some kind of meat chopped up into little pieces combined with mild tasting vegetables with a thick starchy sauce served on rice. Um, so Americans feel very like exotic and yeah. it's not not very challenging food. Um, for a white American. Well, there and there is a continuing argument to this day over whether it was um, a modification of a Chinese dish or a brand new dish invented specifically for non-Chinese. Uh, I tend to favor the argument that says, in fact, it was a modification of a dish that in China, uh, the name translated to odds and ends or bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. The difference was that brown gravy and the use of pork, chicken or beef as opposed to offal, which is yeah. generally what was included in the dish that was eaten in China. But either way, it grew out of the, the, the gold rush. When yeah. Chinese came here to be uh, to pan for gold, and restaurateurs came with them, and then realized uh, if they wanted to sell food to non-Chinese, it couldn't really be what the Chinese liked to eat. And a lot of them had experience too. Um, I was reading that it, the a lot of the first a lot of the first Chinese immigrants to come were from were Cantonese, and that region had a lot of business from uh, European and American business places, um, companies and so forth. So a lot of people who were cooks had already been figuring out how to cook to the Western tastes. Um, and the popularity yeah, of Chinese and a lot food, of sugar. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> but, so the popularity of Chinese food kind of goes up and down over the course of the 20th century. World War II, it goes up because China's an ally. Now it's Mao Zedong right. comes around. We, we're less excited about it. Nixon visits China. We are very excited about it. So on and so forth. Yeah, so before Mao, uh, for those of you who didn't were you know sleeping during your uh, Chinese chapter in your history course, uh, before the uh, People's Republic of China was founded, you had the nat what's called the nationalist government, which was kind well, of no, sort at of the time you had the government. Uh, the government, later, right? We now call it the differentiate between the yeah. two. Um, what was it, forty eight, forty nine? That uh, yeah, uh, forty eight. I think is when yeah, they... Ma Mao and his forces basically won a revolution and the, yeah. the nationalists had to get the hell out of town so yeah so one of those Taiwan. nationalists was mm -hmm. uh a guy who was born in 1919 um named chef uh pong Kui, i think um yeah, no, I, and... I, I have always had trouble with that but i took that pronunciation out of the great documentary in search of general cho so that's so the one I. i'll use <laughs> Okay, fine. I, I got a book. I got a book and I was not impressed with it. And so I was like, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to just watch that documentary and take notes because the book was a so great bad. Documentary. I, yes. I highly recommend it. And by the way, since I went back and rewatched it uh, a couple of days ago, it's on uh, um, YouTube for like five bucks to rent. It's a, it's yeah. a really, as a TV producer, um, 
and a rather arrogant one. I don't get a whole lot of production envy when I watch a lot of stuff on TV. Man, I wish I I, I had done this one. It's, it's a so really great documentary. Beautifully done. It's it's just terrific. Yeah. So so he was born in 1919. Um, in 1933, he apprenticed to a chef, who was a like fourth in line to being the chef for the premiere or what have you, who, and both, both these men were from Hunan province. He apprenticed for a while. He gets a job as a personal chef to um, a woman, um, uh, Zhang Guangshan, who was like the, the daughter of some important general or something, something. But as a result, he gets really well connected mm -hmm. within the nationalist government. So when the People's Republic of China is founded, the nationalist government has to get out of town. They go to Taipei and Taiwan. And he went along with them. Side note, I actually have an aunt who is Taiwanese and she's very particular because she's Taiwanese, like from Taiwan. She's not like one of these like Chinese people who like, you know, hopped over uh, in 48. And it's, it's interesting. She's very particular about that. She's like, no, 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 no. I'm from Taiwan. Chef Pong, he was uh, in Taipei in 1955, and there's some debate over what exactly was going on that inspired this, but one way or another, <laughs> he made General So's chicken. Well, there's, there's, look, there's a, a, a story that seems to be the one most people accept, mm -hmm. which is that uh, the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, mm -hmm. Ar Admiral Arthur Radford, was to be feted at a banquet that may have been given by Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of the nationalist government, and he wanted to create an unusual dish uh, specifically for this event. And that's how he came up with General Cho's chicken. He, he named it after a 19th century Hunan general, who not surprisingly was General Cho, <laughs> who was a fierce defender of everything Hunanese. Um, and, uh, this dish was uh, followed the flavor profile of, of uh, the cuisine of Hunan, which is spicy, fiery, um, sour, certainly not sweet. Yeah, definitely not uh, sweet. Which we'll get to. But uh, yeah. there's, a, there's another story, too. You know, th there was a Taiwanese food writer who claimed that the dish was actually invented when Chiang Kai-shek's son visited Peng's restaurant and he he had run out of ingredients so he made up general cho's chicken on the spot it seems to be i mean the generally accepted story is the banquet for admiral radford but e either way um the dish was invented in a in a way far different than than we know it today oh for sure and it um General So also just to give a concept for Americans, this is like he's like George Washington in Hunan province. That's one thing that's really delightful in the documentary is they kind of run around and are like, here's General So High School. Here's a giant statue of General So. Here's alcohol named after General So. Like it's oh, very General, like General Chow's liquor. Yep. And, um, and it and <laughs> looks looks fiery. I've never tried it. Yeah, it, it does. But if it's like Mao Tai. <laughs> so yeah, so this this what this dish was and still is over there is very different from i'm actually very curious to try it sometime 
And and until recently, it did not exist in mainland China at all. Now that that's yep. changed. I say recently. I would guess twenty years, but it, it somehow got to China. Um, I'm guessing through the U.S., but uh, I don't know. Yeah. So he starts serving it in Taipei, and then this is uh, the this is the drama. He gets visited by a number of different like chefs and restaurateurs from the United States, including a chef Wong from New York City who works at Shun Li Dynasty. And I had to throw in my favorite Stravinsky quote, good composers borrow, great ones steal. <sighs> so 1972, Shun Li Dynasty starts serving something they call General So's chicken in their restaurant. And this is perfectly timed to with Nixon's trip. And everybody gets really excited about "quote unquote" authentic Chinese food, and and specifically from the Hunan and Sichuan regions, which which we had not really had in the United States before, because Chinese American food up to that point was a direct descendant of the Cantonese who who came to the states and then modified their cuisine to be more American, because nobody in China ever ate beef and broccoli, but. Uh, there you go. <laughs> but but when it was invent when it was created here, it was created very differently. Yes. So it's he made it. Chef Wong made it crispy, so like that deep fried chicken, um, and added sugar. And lots there's of sugar and, and of dialed sugar. down the spiciness. Oh yeah, by like a lot. And made it boneless in in oh. China or Taiwan. Eating food off the bone is preferred. Um, they're not big on McNuggets. Uh, well, they may be today. I don't know. But no, that was one of the major differences. If, if you look at food as served in China, it generally, if there's a bone, it's on it, as opposed to stripping the meat off the bone and, and cutting into little cubes. Now, I don't recall, I think it was cut into smaller pieces on the bone. In other words, you'd get a piece of bone in each piece, but I, I'm not sure on that. That, that was what was implied in the yeah, documentary. Despite the fact that I'm broadcasting this to uh, everyone who's listening, uh, I'm, I'm kind of guessing on that, but I think I'm right. Chef Pong was very annoyed by this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so he goes and opens his own restaurant. Like it looked like on the map, like it's like basically around the corner. In New from, York, yes. No, he yeah, came to the Suddenly Dynasty. Yeah. Yeah, he came to the States and said, Well, if you're gonna do my dish, I'll do my dish. And, um, and yes. He Go was not it. real successful at it. No, but he did get a eyewitness news from yes. I think it's ABC. Channel I think. seven, WABC. Yeah. They they filmed a whole thing of him preparing General So's chicken. And uh, apparently they got like thousands of calls for the recipe. No, back back then, uh, well, it, Bob Lape, the reporter, said they got lots of requests. I'm guessing it was mail back then. You know, if you want the recipe, write to Channel 7, and everybody did, but yeah. Yeah, that's probably my my uh, my millennial brain, just assuming it was a phone call. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and so it's and at this point, we've already got this infrastructure of Chinese restaurants across the nation because, like I said, mm -hmm. these associations were they weren't just like suggesting people go to Philadelphia, New York. They were suggesting they go to like Phoenix and I don't know Indianapolis or places like that. So we had this this system of Chinese restaurants across the nation. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was very easy for them to start picking up this new thing that people were excited about. And a lot of them were already making similar things anyway. In the documentary, they talked about cashew chicken, which is very similar conceptually. 
um, fried chicken with a sauce on it. Well, one of the easy things to grasp uh, in the States is that we sure do love our fried stuff, especially chicken. And right off the bat, if you fry chicken, it is an identifiable dish to us. I mean, you go down a menu and you see fried chicken and then something like, you know, in, in a in a piquant sauce, uh, it, you know, and, and served to our palate with, with, uh, with a lot of sugar. Some chefs actually added honey. Yes. Um, and it became a sweet dish, not, not a fiery dish. And there's a lot of different ways of making it. But well, yeah, I know you can call anything uh, General Chow's chicken at this point. Yeah, but, you know, I, and, and let me be real clear and say very proudly, damn, it's good. Oh yeah. You know, watching my weight and my blood sugar levels today, it'll be a cold day in hell before I can have it again. But it's phenomenal. <laughs> as soon as I tried it for the first time, I'm like, okay, we're we're done with this. I'm in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, these days it's steamed happy family for me. Sauce on the side, mm. please, which is really a tragedy. That's really sad. No, this is inspiring me to go and, and get some after after uh, maybe this afternoon, honestly. How, how can you not? How can you not? Oh, yeah, I've been dying the last couple of days wanting <laughs> to go get um, some. It has less inspired me to get a steamed happy family. So. <laughs> We we've lately been big on the dim sum uh, train. Oh, dim, my dim sum is just such so, a brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, so creation. we we just haven't had we haven't had this sort of style of of food in a while. So I'm well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. there must be Hunanese dim sum. Oh yeah, and I'm sure, and I think they do serve this at the dim sum place that I really like, um, Dim Sum Garden, by the way, on Ray Street. Oh really? Oh so yeah. Good. Oh god, that place is so good. That's oh. a good place. But it's a w- going there and getting like General Tso's chicken would be a waste. Um, no, you need to get the, you have to get the pork soup dumplings. Oh, oh my god! You're oh my me. god! Oh, they're so good. <laughs> I told yeah. you last time about our trip to to Hong Kong and going to the dim sum place that the locals frequented and being offered a duck foot dumpling. Oh, well, and Ooh. this is actually an interesting thing of like. Part of this, so Chef Pong, for the documentary, he was interviewed and asked right. what he thought about this iteration of his dish, and he he does not think much of it. Well, he say he said, look, we we don't use broccoli, we don't use scallions. Um, what what disappointed me, and I don't know how you would have done this, is I wanted him to taste American. Yeah, roast chicken, and I guess you can't fly to Taipei with a um a cooler of it but it would have been nice all they did was show him pictures show him pictures where yeah. it looks like orange but one one thing he said on the documentary which i thought was really interesting was that he thought that the change in general shows chicken from what he had designed originally was showing that um to, to use his words that Amer- or the translator's words i guess i don't know his son um yeah uh americans can't accept chinese food as it is well, there's a lot mm. of truth to that. Right. There's and a I tremendous thought, amount of truth to that. Would you like some tendon and artery in your hot pot? Right. And when I went to when I went to Beijing, I remember how floored everyone was by the fact that I could A use chopsticks correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, which 
correctly, there's different ways of using it in different parts of the world, but the way that people in Beijing recognize this correctly and that I wasn't like super freaked out by like organs and stuff. And this, I think, is such an interesting thing because at the time I was so like, I'm I'm from America. Like, of course, I've seen this stuff before. The only thing I hadn't seen before was like crickets, mm. um, which I admit I did not try. I was a little I was a little squeamish on the crickets. I'll, I'll admit you can not crickets, <laughs> but you can get fried grasshoppers at Seattle Mariner baseball games. I believe it. Mm. Um, but huh. the but it was interesting. But but in their perspective, they were like, but you're American. I thought the only Chinese food you would know would be like General Tso's chicken, which is American food. Well, there is a general belief among Chinese culinary folks and perhaps uh, more broadly around the world that we are a tremendously non-adventurous people when it comes to food. And it's changing, but to some extent that remains the case. You know, I remember we yeah. were doing a piece for some show on a a, a nose to tail restaurant that specialized in pig face, where they would take the face and uh, where the best meat in the entire pig is the the cheeks, mm. and they would kind of wrap it around so the snout was still sticking out, cook it that way, and it was phenomenal. And yeah. the chef said to us, you know. People say this is disgusting. Do they have any idea what's in their sausage? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's know, so true. It's, no, we are not adventurous at all as, as a culture, and that's a shame. And, and yeah. again, I think it's changing to some extent. Yeah. It is, and I think it also depends on where you are and what you've been exposed to. That's one thing. that The book that mm-hmm. I got, which I'm not going to name because I thought it was bad. Just um, it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, it. But uh, it... I was an, one thing that annoyed me about it is is it had this idea that like white Americans couldn't possibly understand Chinese food in even like it's it's like modified form to an extent that I thought was ridiculous. Like they were like, "Oh, dumplings! How could white Americans know what dumplings are?" And I'm like, "You mean kreplach?" Yeah, like <laughs> like I, I don't. Every culture has dumplings. Right. That that was it's the moment fair. actually I closed the book and said I'm done. Like no, if you know, there are I can't certain, this. whatever the ingredients, there are certain forms of food that exist everywhere. Dumplings yes. makes perfect sense. It's uh or like hand pies in the UK. Yeah. Like it's yeah. you put you put starch around meat and Gosh, what a concept. <laughs> That's fabulous. But it, it is all this comes down to like the sort of like American assimilation and these ideas of authenticity and that struggle um, of immigrant and well, I minority. Hate the authenticity word. Yeah, I know you I did. Mean, that's why I said it. People, mm-hmm. It's not authentic. As I probably mentioned last time, one of the most popular dishes in China recently among young folks is scrambled eggs and tomatoes, you know, so right. define authentic. Right. Um, my, yeah. my argument is that any food that comes to the United States and becomes a regular part of our diets is the Americanized version of that. And the question is, is it authentic Chinese American? You right. know, I've had good beef and broccoli. I've had lousy beef and broccoli. Um, good beef and broccoli is it's not my favorite, but it's, it's a, a classic Chinese American dish. 
and it, nothing drives me crazier than than so-called foodies sitting at a terrific Chinese American restaurant and decrying the fact that this isn't legit. I mean, you mentioned Shun Li. That's an extraordinary restaurant. It's a fun. I took my one year for my daughter's birthday. I don't know. Was she 18, 16? We said, where do you want to go? She said, Sean Lee. So mm-hmm. we invi- no, she was in college and we invited a bunch of her roommates and friends. And we went and sat down in this temple of Chinese American gastronomy with the lazy Susan on the table. So you yeah. spin all the plates Incredible. around and you share everything. And the waiter was in the red jacket with the black silk shawl, uh, shawl collar. That's a wonderful um, evolved cuisine yeah. and yeah. done very well. Now, is it like anything served in China? Probably not. I mean, the dumplings may be similar. Um, but it was delicious. Oh, I'll go there any day of the week. It's simply, it's a great restaurant. And you know, when I worked at ABC, not that far from Shunley West, we would often go there for lunch from work. And it was, what a wonderful thing. Sounds amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh yeah, my, I just wanted to, I know we have to go in a couple of minutes. I wanted I, I, to have you a- You know what, I, I, I'll, let's sneak an extra five minutes in and then I'll run real fast. I wanted to perfect. I wanted to just throw in a a, a fun little a fun thing that's happened fun but also um, sad but fun thing that's happening happening soon, which is that I don't know how well you if you've heard about it, but um, like Philadelphia's Chinatown is in deep immense danger of being really? pretty much destroyed because they're trying to build a the new seventy sixers basketball stadium um, gosh they've the, chosen a location yeah. that is home to immigrants yeah or people absolutely. who are bootstrapping their way up at first don't have a whole lot of economic power probably yeah. don't control the philadelphia city council what a shitty thing to i do. know i know it's but, incredibly yeah. shitty. um i had somebody say to me um in all seriousness she looked at me dead in the eyes and she said no, it's a good thing. It'll be like Madison Square Garden. Which displaced a tremendous <laughs> amount of poor right. people. Or the Brooklyn right. Bridge. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. It's a, so it's at the point where um, Philadelphia Chinatown is actually on the, the National Historic um, Preservation Registry. It is the top, one of the, the most, the 11, every year they do ele- the 11 most endangered places in the U.S. And all of Philadelphia Chinatown is one of the most 11, 11 most endangered places. Um, and so there's been tons of like community protests happening for at, like now, I guess it's oh, at least over a year, maybe two years at this point, ever since this, this started. Um, but this is the second year in a row they are doing a Christmas, a Jewish Christmas caroling protest in Chinatown, in, in, in Philadelphia, Chinatown. You know, I only live 90 minutes away. I wonder if I could convince my wife to. I'll send you, I'll send you the link. Send, so there, send me the info, there is a, there is a. Because both Issa and I are going to be out of town. And I'm, I'm out so of town, which I'm very oh, sad okay. about. Right. So I can't so you go. Both get back to town. Let me know. I'll come to town. Perfect. Perfect. Town, okay? So I'm very sad that I can't go because they have rewritten all of these classic Christmas carols and Jewish songs with like lyrics about about Chinatown and going there for Christmas um and it's really delightful um and I think it's a it's a wonderful way to to protest and raise the voices um and, it's, and yeah. plus let's add one other very important fact the 76ers suck <laughs> yep 
they don't deserve a new one. You know, wherever the hell it goes. They don't deserve it. Basketball team, and they always will be. Haven't been any good since you had Dr. J. (laughs) When I when I tour guide, uh, if I go through Chinatown, and I for whatever reason have to be like kind of keep my personal opinions to myself. Um, my joke is always, well, you know, maybe they should, uh, you know, win a few more games and then we can have a conversation. Yeah, um, but, damn it. But not really because Chinatown needs to stay the way it is. So thank you so much, David, for joining us again. And Thanks for help- having me back. I love you guys. Yeah, we love you too. We love you. Well, when you get back from wherever the heck you're both going and have <laughs> wonderful time, um, seriously, let, let's meet in Chinatown. Absolutely. Perfect. Let's do it. I'll show Wonderful. you Dim Sum Garden. I'll break yes. my diet for a day. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to D-Listers of History. If you enjoyed yourself, please subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform you listen on. D-Listers of History is a member of the World Podcast Network. Head over to nycpodcastnetwork.com and give this episode a like to help our rankings. A huge thank you to April Keys for the use of the song Misfit from her album Mountain View. You can find her on all the various social media platforms, and you can find us on all those social media platforms as well. We are D-Listers of History without any hyphens on all social media. A big shout out to the folks supporting us on Patreon. If you want to support us and get access to all sorts of exclusive content, become a patron of this program. All this and more can be found on our website, delistersofhistory.com. Again, no hyphens. And just a huge, huge thank you to Issa as she goes on to her next journey. She will be appearing on one more episode after this just because of how the recording schedule was. Um, But uh, this was her last one that she recorded. So we just wanted to give Issa a little send off. Um, I wouldn't have had the confidence to start this without her. So very, very thankful. Our episodes come out every other week on Mondays. Our next episode will be out on January 8th and will be a interview with Lucas Zellers and talking about the entomologist J.D. Tothill. And now for an episode-relevant audio drop. Oh, listen up, developers, you've got a lot to say. The people here don't want you here, so just go away. Activists came together in song to bring attention to a proposal that they say would negatively impact Chinatown. Today, we just see there's, you know, other, not just the Chinese community, the Jewish community came out to support us. And and, uh, even at that public meeting, you see people from all different ethnic groups.